Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. In this series, I've been looking into the life of Ghislaine Maxwell, the lover of paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein. We've heard how her father, the media tycoon Robert Maxwell, had close connections with intelligence organizations and stole huge sums of money from his company before dying in mysterious circumstances. We heard how her lover, Jeffrey Epstein, had learnt much about business and made many of his contacts through his mentor, international Mr. Fixit and defence contractor Douglas Lease. We heard from two sources that Epstein knew Robert Maxwell and took on many of his Israeli connections after his death. And we heard from his former colleague how he was involved in a major Ponzi scheme and stole from many of his clients. It's becoming clear that perhaps Epstein's wealth didn't come from one single source. He had spent decades befriending some of the most powerful, well-connected and influential people in the world. Business leaders, politicians and celebrities. Many of those people he advised for a fee and others he stole from. Robert Maxwell may have introduced Epstein to senior Israelis. Douglas Lease may have introduced him to defense contractors. And Stephen Hoffenberg may have introduced him to senior US politicians. But it was Ghislaine who introduced him to the ace that he held up his sleeve, Prince Andrew. I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is episode five of Ghislaine for Defiance. Prince Andrew was born in 1960, the Queen's third child, and was first taught at Buckingham Palace by a governess before attending Heatherdown School in Ascot and finishing school at Gordston in Scotland. The same school his older brother Charles and his father, the Duke of Edinburgh, before him attended. After his education, he followed in the family tradition by joining the military and trained as a Navy helicopter pilot. In 1982, Argentina invaded the British territory of the Falkland Islands, leading to a short but violent war. Prince Andrew was stationed aboard HMS Invincible, and he flew a number of missions, something he would later say would have a profound effect on him. He remained with the Navy until 2001, when he was retired from the active list. Being the second son of the Queen, Andrew's chances of becoming King were slim. Therefore, his life was in the shadow of his brother Charles. This is a complicated scenario for a prince to grasp. What is your role in life? Are you merely a backup king in case your older brother dies? Like Prince Harry to Prince William, the second son, Prince Andrew, spent his youth enjoying the lack of responsibility his title afforded him. However, unlike Harry, he has apparently never drunk a drop of alcohol, apart from a sip of champagne aged just 16. His first serious relationship was with the actress Koo Stark, who many say was the true love of his life. But the relationship wasn't to last after it was revealed that she had appeared in a lesbian shower scene in a movie earlier in her acting career. 
Instead, it was Sarah Ferguson, a friend he'd known for some time, who he married in 1986. Andrew and Fergie, as she was known in the tabloids, had two daughters, Beatrice and Eugenie. But just two years after the birth of their second daughter, the couple announced that they would separate. And any hopes of the couple reconciling were dashed when pictures of Fergie appeared in the papers, having her toes sucked by her financial advisor, John Bryan. Outside of providing the tabloids with scandal, she was also facing financial difficulties and was constantly in debt through the 1990s and 2000s. She wrote three tell-all autobiographies, the last of which is thought to have earned her a million pounds, but was also caught in a newspaper sting trying to sell access to Andrew for cash. Her antics, both personal and financial, put her on a collision course with the Queen and other senior royals. After his divorce from Fergie in 1996, Prince Andrew found himself single again and was caught on camera coming out of sweaty nightclubs and partying around the world with topless ladies on yachts and beaches. He started to pick up nicknames in the press, the Playboy Prince, and in more closed circles, Hansy Andy. During the late 90s and early 2000s, he was associated with a number of actresses, it girls, and even a Playboy model. It's rumoured he proposed to one of his girlfriends, a former beauty model turned businesswoman, Amanda Staveley, who turned him down. His regular appearances on the elite party scene was in no small part due to one of his best friends, someone he'd known since the 1980s, Ghislaine Maxwell. It isn't really known when Ghislaine introduced Andrew to her on-off boyfriend Jeffrey Epstein, but unconfirmed sources from the palace say Andrew had a fleeting encounter with Epstein in the Caribbean in 1998 when he was on holiday. But it's widely thought it was the following year when they started to spend time together after Epstein accompanied Ghislaine to a shoot at the Queen's residence in Scotland. The following year, Andrew saw Ghislaine at least ten times and Epstein was there on at least five of those occasions. This included a trip to Palm Beach where they all attended an event at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort, a holiday in Thailand where Andrew was photographed with Epstein aboard a yacht alongside a bevy of topless young women as well as another shooting trip, this time at the Queen's Norfolk residence, Sandringham. Epstein and Ghislaine also attended a huge party at Windsor Castle, along with 600 other guests, for a joint birthday party celebrating Prince Andrew's 40th, the Princess Royal's 50th, the Queen Mother's 100th, and Princess Margaret's 70th. The relationship between Epstein, Ghislaine and Andrew continued into 2001, and in March of that year, they socialised, as they had done many times before in the previous year, but this time it was in London, and Ghislaine and Epstein had brought along a 17-year-old trainee masseuse with them. That girl joined them on a night out to Tramp Nightclub. The events that would happen on the 10th of March 2001 would send shockwaves through the British monarchy. According to that young trainee masseuse, Virginia Roberts. After dancing at Tramp Nightclub, the group made their way back to Ghislaine's London Muse House, where Ghislaine told Virginia that she would do for Andrew what she does for Epstein. 
when they got to the house later that night. Virginia would ask Epstein to take a picture of her with the prince. After all, it's not every day you get to meet a prince. That photo was taken at the top of the stairs, outside a bedroom. It showed the prince with one arm around the waist of the young Roberts, Ghislaine standing in the background. It would shock the world when it was finally released to the public nearly two decades later and caused the man, once second in line to be the King of England, to step down from all royal duties. I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. None whatsoever. Virginia Roberts claims it was that night that she first had sex with the prince, and the following day, Epstein gave her $15,000 for her work. A month later, in April 2001, when Andrew was in New York, Virginia claims to have had sex with him again, and then later in the year, on Epstein's island, Virginia says she was part of an orgy with seven or eight other underage girls that Andrew was involved with. These accusations are incredibly serious, and something that Prince Andrew vehemently denies. But Andrew's close relationship with Epstein can't be denied. He's confirmed he stayed at Epstein's homes in New York, Palm Beach, and Little St. James's Island. He said he visited Epstein's Palm Beach home only four times in total, although witnesses have said it was more like four times per year. Outside of the accusations against the prince, Many have questioned why he maintained such a close relationship with Epstein. In May 2006, an arrest warrant was issued for Epstein in relation to procuring underage girls for sex. Yet despite this, Epstein was still invited to Windsor Castle, to Andrew's daughter Beatrice's 18th birthday party. Andrew says Epstein was just a plus one, a guest of Ghislaine, and that he had no knowledge of this arrest warrant. When he did find out, he claims he ended all contact. Well, I ceased contact with him after uh, I was aware that he was um, under investigation. And that was later on in, in 2006. And I wasn't in touch with him again until 2010. In July of 2010, Epstein was released from jail. But only a few short months later, in December of that year, Andrew was back in New York where he attended a dinner at Epstein's house that some say was in honour of Andrew and to celebrate Epstein's release. Bizarrely, Andrew stayed at Epstein's house for four days. Now I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together. And I took the judgment call that because this was um, serious um, and uh, I felt that doing it over the telephone was the chicken's way of doing it. I had to go and see him and talk to him. That my judgment was probably coloured by my um, tendency to be too honourable, but that's just the way it is. There are other questions regarding those four days spent at Epstein's home. He was seen by the literary agent John Brockman getting a foot massage from a young Russian. 
who was also seen waving goodbye to a 28-year-old Catherine Keating, the daughter of the former Australian Prime Minister, who Andrew had been in close contact with previously at an event in the UAE. His claims of going to New York to cut off contact with the convicted paedophile are hard to believe, and most don't. It was not long after Epstein started spending time with Prince Andrew that Ghislaine introduced him to another hugely influential character, someone who had helped legitimize Epstein and build his profile, former President Bill Clinton. Clinton and Epstein had crossed paths in the 1990s when Clinton was president. They had met at a charity event in 1993 when Ghislaine and Epstein attended a fundraiser at the White House. Some say Epstein had apparently offered to give financial advice to White House aides about the economy. But it was after the president left office and started the Clinton Foundation that the two realized there might be a mutually beneficial relationship between them. After Clinton's presidency ended in 2001, Ghislaine reintroduced Bill Clinton to Jeffrey Epstein, and shortly afterwards, Clinton flew on Epstein's jet, the Lolita Express, along with Chris Tucker and Kevin Spacey, to Africa for a Clinton Foundation event discussing the fight against HIV and AIDS. It was this trip that put Epstein on the map. Magazine editors were asking, who the hell is this Epstein guy? and clambering to write profiles of this man who was jetting Bill Clinton around the world. Mickey Ward's famous profile of Epstein in Vanity Fair and other profiles in New York Magazine, among others, were commissioned shortly after this trip, and suddenly Epstein had started to achieve his goal of getting the recognition he craved, albeit only thanks to his association with the powerful, rather than because of any power he held himself. According to Clinton's friends, the main reason Clinton had a relationship with Epstein was because of his plane. Having the free use of a private jet to shuttle him to various conferences around the world was a plus. But due to the lack of definitive and accurate records, it's unclear how many times Clinton flew on Epstein's private plane. But it's reported that he took anywhere between 15 and 27 flights according to the released flight logs and manifests. Clinton released a statement after the Epstein accusations came out, which said he had just taken four trips with Epstein on his private jet, one to Europe, one to Asia, and two to Africa. It's also unclear how many of these flights were for separate trips versus separate flights. For example, Julian Leese told me he met with Epstein and Ghislaine on a trip with Clinton to Japan and Hong Kong. That trip alone would have consisted of at least four flights. Lise also told me that Epstein would fly from city to city, sometimes stopping only for a matter of hours before jetting off to the next city, the next country, the next meeting. Clinton said he has visited Epstein's New York mansion once, in the company of his Secret Service detail, but denied ever visiting his Caribbean island. But both the unverified flight logs and eyewitnesses suggest that Clinton did visit Little St. James at least once. But no one has ever claimed Clinton was involved in any impropriety. Virginia Roberts, who was with Epstein all the time during this period, according to many witnesses, and who's accused over eight different people of abuse, has never accused Clinton. And no other victims of Epstein have claimed Clinton was involved in any of the sexual abuse that took place, either on the plane or at any of his properties. 
and Shanto Davis, who was on the 2002 Africa flight, said that he was a complete gentleman during the trip to Africa. Clinton said in a statement that he knows nothing about the terrible crimes committed by Epstein. And from both public and private sources, I found that Epstein and Clinton didn't speak after 2007 when Epstein was first charged with crimes against children. One source I spoke to said that Epstein told him how disappointed he was with the Clintons, who dropped him as soon as the allegations emerged. The Clintons may have dropped Epstein, but they did continue a relationship with Ghislaine. In 2009, Ghislaine and Chelsea Clinton were seen on a yacht together, and in 2010, Ghislaine attended Chelsea's wedding. In 2013, Ghislaine participated in a Clinton Foundation initiative, and in 2014, she was at an intimate dinner with Bill Clinton. Sources say that it was Bill Clinton that Ghislaine first knew and was friendly with, but gradually she became closer with Chelsea. There's little evidence to show that she spent time or even knew Hillary Clinton. Ghislaine's relationship with the Clintons also came to an end in 2015 when Ghislaine was named in the Epstein case, prompting Chelsea Clinton to state they were never actually that close after all. Everyone I've spoken to has said that Epstein was socially very awkward. He would ask questions, some say very deep, penetrating questions, others say rather quasi-academic questions to make him sound smarter than he actually was. They've also said he had a short attention span and would speak and write in very short sentences. He wasn't particularly social, and he used Ghislaine to organise and orchestrate his social life. What he did do was collect, as he called it, contact. I invest in people, be it politics or science, he once said. It's what I do. He wanted to surround himself with influential people. Yes, perhaps some of those would be for business reasons or to find new clients, but Epstein looked to these elite influential people as validation of his own status. He had a chip on his shoulder, and by rubbing that shoulder with presidents and princes, he hoped those chips might fall away and he'd be accepted as one of them, not just as the son of a groundskeeper. According to an article in Mother Jones by the writer Leland Nally, one woman, who said she met Epstein at an art fair in Palm Beach, told him that Epstein came up to her and said, Would you like a date with Prince Andrew? He would leverage his influential contacts to gain others, and presumably to show off to a few impressionable young girls. It's clear why Epstein would want to befriend Prince Andrew, but why would someone like Prince Andrew want to befriend Epstein? The obvious conclusion many have jumped to is that he enjoyed the company of Epstein's entourage, the topless girls on the yachts or the wild pool parties that took place on his island. But according to Andrew, it wasn't the girls, it was Epstein's social circle, his network of, not friends, contacts, who Epstein would host at his mansion that attracted Andrew. He had the most extraordinary um, ability to bring um, uh, extraordinary people together. Uh, and that's the bit that I remember, is going to the dinner parties where you would meet academics, politicians, people from the United Nations. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a cosmopolitan group of what I would describe as, as U.S. 
um, eminence. You have to remember that I was transitioning out of the Navy at the time, um, and in the transition, uh, I wanted to, to find out more about what was going on, because in the Navy, um, it's a pretty isolated business because you're out at sea the whole time. Um, and I was going to become the Special Representative for International Trade and Investment. So I wanted to know more about what was going on in the international business world. And so that was another reason for going there. And the opportunities that I had to go to Wall Street and other places to learn uh, whilst I was there were, were absolutely vital. It's hard to believe that the Duke of York wouldn't be able to pick up the phone to anyone in the world and ask for a meeting or a lunch. So why would a prince need this former pauper to provide the introduction for him? One suggestion is that Epstein was able to introduce him to characters that might not be welcome at the dining tables of Buckingham Palace. After leaving the Royal Navy, Prince Andrew was made Special Representative for International Trade and Investment for the British Trade Department, a role which he served from 2001 to 2011. His job was to help boost British exports. A royal spokesman told The Guardian in 2011, when Prince Andrew stepped down from his role, that Middle East potentates like meeting princes. He comes in as the son of the Queen and that opens doors that otherwise would remain closed. We don't send him to developed countries like France and Sweden, where a member of the royal family wouldn't make a difference. But in developing countries, or the Far East, a prince can get in because of who he is. During the time he was in this role, he met with leaders and senior representatives of developing countries including Yemen, Jordan, Malaysia and India, countries that would end up buying British arms shortly after his meetings. A military man, Andrew was comfortable spending time with military attaches, defence ministers and the odd despot or dictator. He was less comfortable around fussy civil servants who wanted to ensure I's were dotted and T's crossed and may well have got in the way of some of the deals he worked on. A 2008 diplomatic cable, for instance, said that Prince Andrew was furious at British anti-corruption investigators who had the idiocy of almost scuttling the Al-Yamama deal with Saudi Arabia. This was the same deal we've mentioned before, that Adnan Khashoggi and Wafiq Syed ran, buying £40 billion worth of weapons and jets from the UK in the 1980s and 1990s. The Prince has built strong relationships with leaders of countries including Bahrain, Tunisia, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan, all countries who have committed human rights abuses against their own people. Andrew's choice of friends has often been brought into question. He sold his former Sunning Hill home for £15 million, £3 million over the asking price, to a Kazakh oil and gas billionaire, Timur Kulibayev, who he described as a good friend. On one trade mission to Kazakhstan, delegates remember the young Kazakh translator that he spent the trip with, not just because of her good looks, but because of the fact that she didn't have much more than the most rudimentary grasp of English. Another friend of Andrew's is the Libyan-born Tarek Kaituni, a known gun smuggler. Not your high-level defence contractor, like Douglas Lease, but someone who was actually caught smuggling a submachine gun into France, supposedly to use to kill his ex-girlfriend. Kaituni 
brokered deals and arranged face-to-face meetings with Prince Andrew and Middle Eastern despots, including Sakir al-Matiri, the son-in-law of the deposed Tunisian president, Zin Ben Ali, who ended up flying out of Tunisia after being accused of money laundering. Khatouni also introduced Andrew to Colonel Gaddafi in 2008, with one meeting taking place at the Tunisian home of Khatouni and the other in the Libyan capital of Tripoli. In total, three meetings were held between Prince Andrew and Gaddafi, none of which were arranged by UK Trade and Investment, the department the prince worked for. Andrew went on to become close with Gaddafi's son. Khatouni, who spent a year in jail in 1998 for possession of drugs, had a long-lasting relationship with Andrew and claimed to undercover reporters in 2011 that he could get Andrew to attend a private event for a fee. He once gave Princess Beatrice an £18,000 diamond necklace months before Andrew allegedly lobbied a British company on his behalf, and in 2018 he even attended the wedding of Princess Eugenie, Andrew's other daughter. Bizarrely, Jeffrey Epstein also gave a gift of £15,000 to Prince Andrew's ex-wife, Sarah Ferguson, to pay off her debt in 2010. It was thought that this was agreed between Andrew and Epstein during the four days he was staying with him in New York. £15,000 is such a comparatively small amount of money. Why would Sarah Ferguson accept it? And why would Andrew have negotiated it? Especially after Andrew reportedly cleared her £5 million of debt around the same time. Sarah Ferguson said at the time she had paid the Epstein money back, but it's not clear whether she actually has done. Prince Andrew stepped down from his government role as trade envoy in 2011, after he was photographed walking through Central Park with Epstein during that notorious December 2010 New York visit. This caused huge embarrassment for the palace, and little was heard of Andrew until his name came up in court papers again in 2015 in relation to Epstein. Virginia Roberts had said in the Florida court that she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew three times, but those details were struck from the court, with the judge saying that they were immaterial and impertinent. However, the fact that his name had been mentioned at all was leaked, and further pressure was heaped on the prince. Virginia said she initially gave the famous photo of her with Prince Andrew to the FBI in 2011, but no action was taken. Then, after the 2015 court said the evidence she gave was immaterial, she went to the media. According to a leaked recording, Amy Roback of ABC News said that Virginia Roberts had given her all the information about Epstein's abuse and Prince Andrew's alleged involvement, but nothing was done. Internal politicking and threats from the palace, she claimed, stopped it from coming out. I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, First of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, Then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, We were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that that also quashed the story. And then um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. 
I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail and now it's all coming out and it's like these new revelations and I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh my God, we, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up, Brad Edwards, the attorney three years ago saying like, aunt, like we, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. All kinds of threats from the palace, she said. After the leak, Amy Roback later said the reason it didn't go to press was because the evidence didn't meet ABC's editorial standards. It was three years later before it did finally come out, when Virginia tried again, telling the media she was trafficked to Prince Andrew. But this time, a British newspaper published the photograph and things finally came to a head. Under pressure to clear his name, in November 2019, Andrew took part in a BBC interview in which he claimed he was at a pizza restaurant the night of the alleged sexual abuse. On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a pizza express in Woking for a party at a I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. Um, and I remember it weirdly distinctly. But as soon as somebody reminded me of it, I went, oh, yes, I remember that. He also made the bizarre claim that he couldn't sweat in response to Virginia's accusation that he was sweating profusely in Tramp nightclub. There's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I... I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat, um, or I didn't sweat at the time, and that was, oh, actually, yes, I didn't sweat at the time, because I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at, uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. And he said that he did not regret befriending Epstein. <laughs> Now, still not, and the reason being is that, that the, the people that I met um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn, um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful. He also failed to offer any sympathy to Epstein's victims when given the chance. A survey taken shortly after the interview showed that only 6% of Brits believed Andrew's version of the events. Not long afterwards, he was relieved of his remaining royal duties by the Queen. Prince Andrew has not testified under oath, although he has been given many chances to do so, and has been requested to do so on a number of occasions too. US Attorney General William Barr even made a shocking announcement that said he had sent an official request under the US-UK Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty to the Home Secretary, requiring her help in obtaining evidence from the Prince. This is normally the step before extradition. It is clear to me that Prince Andrew should sit in person for an interview with the FBI and 
with prosecutors. And he could do that in the United Kingdom, or he could do that in New York. This is attorney Gloria Allred, who represents 20 victims of Jeffrey Epstein in three ongoing civil lawsuits who we spoke to regarding Andrew. So far, it appears that he's been avoiding and evading appearing for an in-person interview which has been requested of him by the Justice Department. And I think it's important that he appear for the in-person interview because he clearly would have information that could be relevant to a criminal case. He may also have visited and stayed with Epstein at other locations, potentially at Zorro Ranch in New Mexico, Little St. James Island, at Mr. Epstein's home there. But in any event, he would have known some of the people who would have been coming and going from Mr. Epstein's home, many of them were young women or underage girls. And I think it's important the prosecutors hear from him as to what he observed. I'm not going to sit here and make accusations that he was or was not involved in anything inappropriate or criminal. But I do think, like anyone who may have relevant information to a criminal investigation, he should provide it. He should sit there and do this without conditions and without delay and without any further excuses and without trying to portray himself as a victim. Orid sent him a letter to his home, which was delivered last December, but he never responded. In January, United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman, also urged Prince Andrew to provide an interview to law enforcement. He didn't respond. Audrey Strauss, who took over from Berman when he stepped down, also said in a press conference that she would like to speak to Prince Andrew. Now, Prince Andrew's representatives and lawyers appeared to say that he wanted to do the interview, that they're not contacting him. Frankly, I have a hard time believing that. Maybe, and this is just an educated guess, I, I don't know if this is the case or not, maybe Prince Andrew's lawyers are indicating that he'd be willing to answer questions in writing, but not appear for an in-person interview. Maybe that's the confusion as to why they're seeming to suggest that he would, you know, provide information. And but Ms. Strauss is is indicating that he's not appeared for an interview. Orid says that written answers are clearly no substitute for an in-person interview. He could prepare answers with his lawyers and avoid tricky or follow-up questions. Of course, the only duty when you speak to law enforcement is to answer questions truthfully. And there are consequences if you answer questions and they're not truthful. 
Victims deserve the truth. They deserve transparency. And so far, and they deserve justice. And so far, they haven't received the whole truth. They haven't received transparency and they haven't received justice. And I think that Prince Andrew needs to do this for the victims, but he's not yet done it. And I think the big question that is looming is why not? Ored says that she's more than happy to help Prince Andrew's lawyers connect to prosecutors. Now I think the burden is on Prince Andrew to explain why he has not yet sat for an interview with the prosecutors. I'd like him to sit for an interview for our civil cases as well, but the priority really is the criminal case at this point, and he has not done that. And I've said, whether a person is a prince or a pauper, they should help. Prince Andrew has been removed from the public eye by the royal family. Few believe his version of events, and his reputation is in tatters. But it doesn't seem that he will face trial or answer questions anytime soon. With Epstein dead, the full weight of the scandal is now resting on the shoulders of Ghislaine. Is she his partner in crime, the mastermind behind his network and wealth, or is she a victim of his evil and manipulative behaviour? The victims, the media and the public are baying for blood, and that blood will be Ghislaine's. In the next episode of Ghislaine. No one is at this point really can predict if there will be a trial or not in this case. We try to understand Ghislaine's role in the case, her motivations, and whether or not she'll make it to trial. This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank Gloria Orried for her time, and the other people I spoke to in the research of this show who'd like to remain anonymous. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson, head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films.